While women physicians often feel the impact of gaps in gender equity most keenly, the effects of gender bias resonate throughout an entire health system. We trip up sometimes and think that this is a problem for the benefit of women, and I want to reframe that. This is a problem for everybody in healthcare, and because of that, it's a problem for our patients as well. That's Esther Chu, MD, MPH, a professor at Oregon Health and Science University. On this episode of Moving Medicine, a podcast from the American Medical Association, Dr. Chu explores the impact of gender bias in the workplace. I'm your host, Todd Unger, Chief Experience Officer at the American Medical Association. This episode of Moving Medicine is the first of two parts about gender equity in healthcare. This speech was presented at the 2019 AMA Annual Meeting in Chicago. Here's Dr. Chu. The published objectives of this talk are to describe gender equity in the workplace and to discuss practices and processes that eliminate gender bias in hiring, promotion, leadership, and inclusivity. I will just point out that as I thought about this topic, that word seemed highly optimistic. Um, so let's just say that we will address gender bias. We'll talk about approaches and frameworks for this problem. I do have a few caveats. I focus on gender for purposes of efficiency and simplicity, of course, all the topics I talk about apply to race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, gender identity, disability, many other um, types of identity. Um, I also do, when I mention gender, simplified to binary, which is, again, an oversimplification. Um, and finally, I focus on physician careers because that seems the best fit for this audience, but recognize that these are issues that span healthcare, and we should think about our colleagues in other roles in healthcare when we address these issues. There are a lot of ways to approach gender bias and a lot of reasons to care. Um, and I will say f they're all valid. I think for me as a health services researcher with an interest in women's health and gender disparities, the issue always comes down to patient care. I, I think that is a very compelling true north when you think about this topic. Um, for years, I've been aware of some inequities in the provision of healthcare and its outcomes. Um, a very obvious solution to them, one solution, seemed to be diversification of our healthcare workforce so that we as care providers look a lot more like the population that we serve. And then when I thought about why don't we just diversify our healthcare workforce to match the populations we serve, um, it turns out that our healthcare workforce isn't a great place for a lot of people. And I want to show you some evidence that this is true. Um, first of all is this really stunning report that came out last year. June of 2018, and actually the entire thing is quite a compelling read. This was put out by the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, um, and it was a comprehensive review of sexual harassment in the academic scientific fields. Um, they used this definition going forward. One, um, gender harassment, which is kind of the whole body of verbal and nonverbal behaviors that convey hostility, objectification, exclusion, or second-class status of women. Um, and then the more overt sexual behaviors that we think of, unwanted sexual attention and sexual coercion. Uh, and I just want to point out that um, gender harassment, the most general 
type is the most common, and it's just as corrosive to work and well-being as the other types of sexual harassment. So there's really no reason to exclude it in our consideration of sexual harassment. So using this broad definition, the report found that there's little change over time. This problem is not getting better on its own, as we had hoped. It is worst in medicine compared to all the sciences. It is generally overlooked and highly tolerated. It is undermeasured, and when we do measure, we poorly measure it, not using um, validated or, or rigorous uh, instruments to measure the problem. We are very stalled on litigation. In other words, the objective of most organizations is simply not to get sued, which is a very low bar. Um, and women of color, sexual and gender minority individuals experience more sexual harassment than others. There is also the least amount of information on these groups. As far as outcomes, the report found that it finds that sexual harassment undermines women's professional and educational attainment. It has measurable negative effects on mental and physical health. It leads to attrition from leadership roles, from institutions, and even from the field of medicine entirely. And it has a stronger relationship with women's well-being than any other job-related stressor. So we spend a lot of time these days talking about physician wellness, and we talk about EMR and patient volume and regulatory requirements and a whole host of things. And part of that conversation should be the impact of sexual harassment on women because of its profound impact on them. I want to be clear, too, that this is not just a problem for women because harassment affects everybody in an organization. So it spreads, the negative impacts of sexual harassment spread like a toxin to witnesses of the harassment, their entire working group, and actually the entire organization. So I think we trip up sometimes and think that this is a problem for the benefit of women, and I want to reframe that. This is a problem for everybody in healthcare, and because of that, it's a problem for our patients as well. This report actually does an amazing job of looking at the organizational antecedents of harassment. So harassment occurs, um, it is rife in healthcare, so what is making it happen? Because I do think that most of us are shocked by this data and do not feel that this is something that we align with or that we wish to be present in our healthcare workforce. And so the, they, they basically identify three main organizational antecedents to the occurrence of harassment. One is settings that are male-dominated male-led, and also climates that tolerate sexual harassment. And I want to be very clear that what we're talking about when we say the climate tolerates sexual harassment is that the climate that, toler that, um, that tolerates it is one of inequity. And let's talk about some of those inequities. So let's start with salary, which is kind of the easiest to quantify. There have been numerous studies over the past decade that demonstrate that there are consistent, um, consistent and meaningful differences in, in the salary of, of male and female physicians. Um, so this is one uh, study with a large population that was fairly well controlled because of, um, because of the amount of uh, access to direct data they had. So this took advantage of the fact that public medical schools have to disclose their salary. Um, and um, and you know the first thing you uh, you want to see when you see any study about salary equity is are the obvious confounders accounted for? And I thought this study did a really lovely job of accounting for kind of the, the things that you would think might explain a difference in salary between men and women that we would consider fair or um, or at least um, understandable, right? So they included uh, things like faculty rank and spe choice of specialty, the amount of NIH funding you had, participation in clinical trials, your publication 
citation count as first or last author, um, your kind of academic pedigree, uh, a proxy for clinical productivity, um, and some med school level fixed effects. And after adjusting for all these things, um, this is what they found in the adjusted analysis. They found an unexplained around $20,000 difference in salary. Um, people will ask me, well, that's academia. Surely it's better in private practice where it's more RVU-based. And actually, from available data, it seems like the problem is worse. So this is the third year of the Doximity Physician Compensation Report. Um, they found that, um, and I will say this is also nicely adjusted for, so they only included physicians who worked at least 40 hours a week, which they called full-time. Ha, 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 full-time. Um, and then... And then on top of that, adjusted for hours worked, choice of specialty, um, and, um, uh, and also where in the country you worked. And they found that female physicians earned about $90,000 less on average than male physicians. And overall, female physicians earned $1 for every $1.25 male physician earned. The other thing is um, we'll often hear that all we need to do to fix the gender equity problem and salary and advancement and things like that is just bring in more women, right? I heard that when I was in medical school um, 25 years ago. They said, well, um, we are just about equal in medical school, so all these problems, as those women filter up, all these problems will go away. And it's... Um, it's pretty abundantly clear that's not going to happen by just headcount, because even in specialties dominated by women, like OB-GYN, those salary inconsistencies favoring men exist. And as of 2018, there was no single specialty in which women earned more than men. All right. And, um, and if, you, uh, if you really think that the headcount will make a difference, just consider nursing, because nursing has been dominated by women for as long as we can remember, and there is a salary inequity there that favors men. Medicine doesn't stand still, and at the AMA, neither do we. AMA members are physicians like you who are shaping the future of medicine. Become a member today and join the movement. Visit ama-assn.org slash movingmedicine. What about promotion? So the same group that actually did the, the academic physician salary study also looked at differences in academic rank at US medical schools. And they found that really this is kind of the curve that represents advancement of women compared to advancement of men. Um, so the blue line is a men reaching higher rank um, to full professor rank over time. And the lower, uh, the lower red line is women. Um, and they, again, adjusted uh, thoughtfully for things, including age, years since residency, choice of specialty, scientific authorship, NIH funding, and clinical trial participation. And I'll just say that when you look at this curve, this is the curve for women in medicine. Whether you're talking about salary or promotion or leadership roles, um, we start out kind of about the same, but with men slightly ahead. And then over, over time, those differences tend to expand. And this is really, I consider this kind of the crisis of the mid-career women, which is as you go up, the air becomes thinner, there are a few of you, and you feel feel the opportunity drop away as opportunities become rarer. Um, when we get to the top leadership, of course, women fall away almost entirely. Um, my friend Eleni Linos led this team, and they were initially going to look at the number of chairs uh, who were women, and then they thought, well, it's patently obvious that there are fewer female chairs than male chairs. So they were like, what if we just looked at the chairs with mustaches? So rather than all men, let's, um, let's quantify the, the facial-haired men. And they were very scientific about it. So you had to you know, match one of these types of facial hair. Um, and they found that women were 13% of over 1,000 departmental leaders of the top 50 NIH-funded US medical schools. Just the mustache leaders, 19%. 
Um, and there were only six out of 20 specialties that had more women than mustaches, and they created this lovely mustache index, saying that, you know, maybe we can't achieve 50-50 equity in this lifetime for men and women in these major leadership positions, but can we at least have a mustache index of greater than one, where at least the women can outnumber the mustache? I think that's a reasonable goal. Can we, can we go for a mustache index greater than, than one? I will say, as I travel around the country and talk about gender inequity, um, and I talk with a lot of women across fields in medicine, many women will say to me, you know, I, I care about, uh, and, you know, uh, um, from a distance, I kind of I care about the salary thing, I care about the promotion thing, but on a day-to-day -day basis, what really demoralizes me and really impacts me every single day that I go to work is, is what we call these microcosms. You know, the um, and these are kind of humorously named things like man-interrupting and appropriation, but all the little interpersonal insults that kind of go back to that broad definition of, of sexual harassment I talked about. These little signals that you do not belong here, you don't have value or worth, your ideas are not going to be credited, your voice is not heard. And I hear time and again for women, from women um, that that is just as profound an impact as any of these other inequities. And I will say, you know, this is, um, this is data from the AAMC that shows kind of a leaky pipeline of women as you move up the ladder in academia. And, um, you know, I will say I've looked at this for a long time, and people told me in the early part of my career that the leaky pipeline was because of women's choices, that we made choices to step out, um, to not achieve as much, to not spend as much time or be as engaged, and that's why women didn't move forward. But looking across this data, I think to myself, um, well, there's a safety gap here, and there's a pay gap, and there's an opportunity gap, and there's a respect gap, and I'm not totally clear what the true choice is when we have all these gaps. So I think let's address these little gaps, these inequities, and then we can see what the true choices of women are, because in the current setting, you, you cannot make the same choices as men can. So I just ask you as an exercise, just Take a moment and think about what it would look like in healthcare if there was no harassment, if pay, advancement, and opportunity were perfectly equitable, and if all healthcare workers felt valued and respected. Can you picture that? Just in your immediate work environment. Does that feel good? So let's get there. That was Dr. Esther Chu on recontextualizing gender bias as a problem for everyone in healthcare. I'm Todd Unger, and this is Moving Medicine, a podcast by the American Medical Association. To get exclusive AMA advocacy news and information impacting physicians, patients, and the healthcare environment, subscribe to the AMA Advocacy Update newsletter at ama-assn.org slash advocacy-update. You can also subscribe to Moving Medicine and other great AMA podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thank you for listening.